This morning, I had planned to give you a sermon on Jonah. I'd had it all planned out. I was going to talk about the sign of Jonah and what I thought that was. But as the time drew nearer, um, it just began to weigh on me that perhaps I should rather give you a text that has been on my heart more this summer, the text that I've been leaning on. And so I chose this passage, 1 Corinthians 15, because this has been a great word of comfort to me over the years and especially over this past few months. My reflections on 1 Corinthians 15, particularly verses 1 through 8, began in college as various professors would challenge my faith and I would turn to this text repeatedly as a way of fortifying and shoring up my trust in Christ when it was being challenged. And my reflections on verses 50 through 58 really began in mid-May at a meeting at Westminster Seminary as our dean of students informed us that one of our classmates and one of my former housemates had taken his own life. And as we grieve together as a seminary, one of our professors, Sam Logan, read to us verses 51 through 58. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And I found myself reflecting on this passage again later on in the summer as I had to read it at my grandfather's funeral. And this has just been a great word of comfort to me as the months have gone by this summer. And I would like to share some of that hope and some of the sustaining power of these promises of God to you. So let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have raised up Your Son as our King. Lord, that in Him You will set the world right. That sin and death will be conquered once and for all that the perishable will put on the imperishable, that mortality will be swallowed up in immortality, that death will be swallowed up in victory. Lord, we pray that now as we turn to Your Word, Lord, that You'd have me say nothing more and nothing less than what You'd have me to say. We pray that You'd use this Word to sustain our hearts as we chafe, as we face the challenges of this world. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. What do you do when you get a phone call late at night from an old friend, choking back tears, trying desperately to get the words out that another old friend has died in a car accident? Or what do you do when your mom calls you to tell you that one of your old wrestling buddies 
was killed by a roadside bomb in Iraq? Or what do you do when your sister calls you to tell you that granddaddy just didn't make it today and we need you to come home? Or what do you do when you get the news that dad's got terminal cancer and it's really only going to be a few more months? How do you even begin to cope with those sorts of phone calls? How do you even begin to cope with the news that death has come crashing in on your life when everything seemed to have been going so smoothly not too long ago? Many of us have gotten such phone calls. Many of us have made such phone calls. And if you haven't, you will. Or somebody's going to be making those phone calls to your family about you. Death is a present reality. This is something that we have to face daily or ignore daily. But let's not be so myopic as to think of death only insofar as it touches on our immediate circle of friends and family. It's, it's really easy for us as Americans to think that way. It's really easy. We insulate ourselves from death by, if we have the means, we'll move 20 miles across town from the places where people are dying of drug overdoses and violence and AIDS and sometimes starvation. We have 911 service and health insurance. We put on lots of sunscreen and we take our Lipitor pills. We eat lots of fiber and we buckle up for safety. All to build up the illusion that somehow we've gotten the better of death in a thousand little battles. That we somehow staved it off. We desensitize ourselves to it by watching the news every night. You just can't grieve over every corpse that flashes across your TV screen. And so, after watching for a few weeks, you get used to it. You get to a point where you can see suffering, dying, and dead people by scores and feel no empathy whatsoever doesn't even phase you anymore. Often it's only in so far as the dead remind us of ourselves that we find ourselves troubled. Very few of us lay awake at night thinking about the casualties in the Nepali Civil War. But as soon as the suburbs of Louisiana are flooded, we find ourselves springing to action and move to prayer. Let's try and take those guards down for just a moment. Let's try and remove the things that we've built up to insulate ourselves. Let's soften our hearts so that we won't be desensitized just for a moment. Let's reflect on what's going on with our brothers and sisters, fellow human beings throughout the world right now. 
before the day is out, 30,000 people will have died of starvation. Or to put that in perspective, 1,250 people will have starved to death before this service is over. It's one person every three seconds. Or consider that at least 943 civilians have been killed in Iraq this month alone, along with 186 Iraqi police and military and 38 coalition forces. Not to mention the casualties of the current conflicts in, between Israel and Lebanon and other parts of the world. Or consider that just last year, 2.8 million people died of AIDS worldwide. It's 319 an hour. Five every minute. And of course, we've really said nothing about deaths brought on by natural causes or car accidents or cancer or so on. Causes of death that seem more close to home to most of us. Death is not something that just happens occasionally. As much as we would like to think that's the case, it happens constantly. Death is like the great black elephant in the middle of the room that no one's talking about somehow. Now, some would say that death is just part of life. Shrug it off. I would say that that's another way of desensitizing yourself to it. It's not true. The Bible portrays death as a great enemy to be defeated. There's just something fundamentally wrong with death. Something distorting and perverse about it. Death, far from being part of life, is the very negation of it. Even Jesus, who feared nothing, sweated blood because He feared death. Jesus Himself wept at the graveside of Lazarus. Can there be any hope when you face this grim, inevitable reality? And the answer is yes. Jesus, though He feared death, though He wept over it, and though He eventually succumbed to it, conquered it, by His resurrection, He defeated death once and for all. Please turn with me if you've got your Bibles to verses 50 through 58 in 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. What we're looking at here in this passage is the kingdom of God. God is going to make His reign and His control and His sovereignty over this world absolutely obvious. Manifestly obvious 
You'll never again have to ask, is death the only unavoidable reality? Is death what is in control of the way the world works? There's coming a day when God will reign in such a way that you will have no doubts whatsoever that it is He, not death, who rules this world. We're looking at the Kingdom of God. What is it like? What's it going to be like? What will we be like who partake of it? Verses 51-53, through 53, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We're not speaking of some sort of airy-fairy concept of life after death. We're talking about life after life after death. We're talking about the resurrection. We're not talking about being disembodied souls after we've died, but being re-embodied souls after we've been dead. There's coming a day when this perishable, corruptible body in which I now live and breathe It will be restored and transformed. Never to suffer. Never to fall apart, get hurt, wither ever again. Death shall be swallowed up by life. And life by a new spiritual sort of life of which we've only had inklings this side of glory. We await the day when that small deposit of the Holy Spirit that you have now will be paid in full. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly body, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee We groan and we long for that day, don't we? When death will be swallowed up by life. When mortality will be swallowed up by immortality. When there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more hunger, no more disease, no more sin, no more evil. And in its place, there will be joy, vitality, life, exuberant communion with and worship of our great God. 
when every wholesome satisfaction that you've ever longed for will be fulfilled and other satisfactions that you never even knew enough to long for in the first place will be too. We look forward also not merely to the restoration of our bodies, this earthly tent, but we look forward also to the transformation of the whole world, the renewal of all things, to the day when anything that does not glorify God, anything that is wicked or evil, anything that doesn't have eternal substance or weight to it, will be either shaken off or burned away. And in its place, there will be a new transformed nature, a new heavens and a new earth. This new heavens and new earth will not be a new world altogether. It will be in some way continuous with this world. In that day, as Revelation 21.5 says, Jesus will say, Behold, I make all things new. Not, behold, I make all new things. Much less, I'm doing away with things altogether. All of this will involve matter and bodies, rolling fields, silver shores, groves, gardens, hands, feet, eyeballs, feasts, months, seasons. The Christian hope is not that God will put away the material world, but that He will redeem it. God likes matter. He invented it. But all that is wrong with the world will, in fact, be put away. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, The Bible says that He goes to prepare a place for us. This presumably means that He is about to create that whole new nature which will provide the environment or conditions for His glorified humanity and in Him for ours. It is not the picture of an escape from any and every kind of nature into some unconditioned and utterly transcendent life. It is the picture of a new human nature and a new nature in general being brought into existence. The old field of space, time, matter, and the senses is to be weeded, dug, and sown for a new crop. We may be tired of that old field. God is not. Verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has and has yet to conquer death. In that day, death will be swallowed up in victory, never to hold sway over this world again. Then we will taunt death as Paul does here, 
O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We will taunt death as hard as that is to believe when you get one of those phone calls. We will do that knowing that Jesus, having fulfilled the righteous and just law of God, having exhausted the penalty of that law in Himself, having died for sin, was risen on the third day from the grave and defeated death. He was declared by God to be the King of God's kingdom. The King of a new humanity and of the whole world. When God raised Him from the dead, and all who are in His kingdom will partake of His resurrection and shall share in His victory. Now the question that seems most obvious is, why would anybody believe that? Is that just wishful thinking? Is that just a bunch of Hooey? Is that just superstition? Is there any grounds for believing something like that? For having that kind of hope? And that's the question that the Corinthians were asking. Paul writes this chapter because there are Corinthians who have been saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. What are you talking about? That's nonsense. The whole of the Gentile or pagan world was in agreement. Resurrection? Sure. I understand what that means. Somebody who is dead bodily comes back to life and enters into new life. They all knew what it meant and they all said, no way. Couldn't happen. Nonsense. And the Corinthians some of them at least, began to buy into that. And this chapter is Paul addressing that issue. Why would you believe that you have that future in store for you if you trust in Christ? And the answer he gives is to remind them of the Gospel. The Gospel that he preached to them. Look to verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul's response to doubt about our future hope is to point back to the Gospel. Now, what is that? What is a Gospel? When we say the word these days, often you get ideas of a certain kind of music sung by the Gaithers or on occasion by Elvis. Or you think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So it's a It's kind of book. Or perhaps you think of Luther's doctrine of justification by faith alone. Well, 
The gospel, or the word gospel, in Greek, euangelion, the word from which we get evangelism, evangelist, evangelical, in which we translate as gospel, it just means good news. That's a word that people in Paul's day would have been very familiar with. This was the word used for bringing news of victory in a great battle. Or often it was used to declare that a new emperor or a new king had come to power. That he had risen to the throne. Or that a new king had been born and that the throne was in store for him. A euangelion or gospel served to tell people who their king was. For instance, in 6 B.C., there was a saying inscribed on walls and statues all throughout the Roman world that announced the birth of Augustus Caesar. And it read like this, Augustus has been sent to us as a Savior. The birth of the God Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the Gospel. Here we have them announcing the rise of a new king. It's a gospel. Or, you could look at the Greek Old Testament of 2 Samuel 4. A messenger brings the news of victory that Saul has been slain in battle. He brings this news to David. And David says this, he says, "...as the Lord lives who has redeemed my soul out of all affliction..." He that reported to me that Saul was dead, even he was as one bringing euangelion, good news, before me. But I seized him and slew him in Sekelach, to whom I ought, as he thought, to have given a reward for his good news. Or say Isaiah 52, 6-7, Therefore shall my people know my name in that day. For I am he that speaks. I am present as a season of beauty upon the mountains, as the feet of one preaching good news, gospel, euangelion, good news of peace. As one preaching good news, for I will publish thy salvation saying, O Zion, Thy God shall reign. Gospel is not just saying, hey, good news. You're a sinner, but God loves you anyway. No. It's more than that. It's not less, but it's more. It is the news of victory. It is news that we have a new king. Proclaiming the gospel is not a polite suggestion or an invitation for you to consider trying a new religious option if that's where you're at on your spiritual journey. No, proclaiming the Gospel is the royal declaration that Jesus has conquered and therefore He rules this land. He is your King. And you can either bow the knee as a loyal subject or be a rebel who will soon be ousted out of his kingdom. 
Now, what is the content of this Gospel? How does Paul go about reminding them of this Gospel? Well, he goes back to something they've heard before. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That's a standard phrase in that world for passing on oral tradition or a creed. We all have creeds in the church. Say the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ His only Son, our Lord, and so on. Or the Nicene Creed. As we have creeds now, so also did they have creeds then. Except they're a lot older than our creeds. He uses a similar sort of phrase in chapter 11 when talking about the Lord's Supper. So we're looking at a very, very old Christian creed. A very succinct, formal summary of what the Christian faith is. This creed was probably formulated before Paul was even converted. And it was probably passed on to him by the church in Jerusalem. And he in turn passed it on to the Corinthians. This creed or confession was probably pulled together and written out this way within about three years of Jesus' death. This is basically the proclamation of the church from the very beginning. And what does it say? Well, it's a proclamation of the Christ. Christ is just the word, it's the Greek word for Messiah or anointed one, which means the king, the king of Israel. So, again, this is the royal proclamation of the king of Israel. Hear ye, hear ye, this is your king and this is what he's done. But then there's something very, very odd. That the Messiah, the King, died for our sins. The earliest Christian proclamation was that the King, the Messiah, had died. That's odd, don't you think? What's more, he had died the most gruesome, obscene, shameful death known to man. Now, to a Jewish person or even a Gentile person living in that day, to hear the words that the Messiah died, the King of Israel died, that's nonsense. That makes no sense at all. Now, to us, that makes perfect sense. Because we only think of Christ in connection with Jesus. We only think of Messiah in connection with Jesus. And He did die. So, when we hear Christ, we think automatically of a cross. That's not how people thought when Paul was writing this letter. The Jews of Jesus' day simply understood that the Messiah would not die. You see, they had a problem. 
the Romans had conquered their land and had been ruling it for centuries. And they were expecting a Messiah to come in who would not die, but who would kick out the Romans, who would lead an armed revolt and get them out of their land, who would restore the Israelite nation to their rightful place as the people of God, that He would cleanse their land and vindicate them. And, with God on His side, the Messiah would defeat the Romans. And He would usher in an age of Israelite sovereignty and prosperity and peace. Now, in fact, there were lots of people, well, several people in that day, who claimed to be the Messiah. Who stepped forward and said, I'm Him. I'm the man for the job. And they did what they thought the Messiah should do. And they began revolts to overthrow the Romans. All told, there were about 16 or so messianic movements and people who claimed that they were the long-awaited Messiah. For instance, well, first, each of these men, in leading their revolt, were eventually conquered. The Romans crushed them, destroyed them, slew them. And in each case, everyone understood, well, this person was killed, this person is dead, messiahs don't die, messiahs win. Therefore, whatever that guy said, he's not the messiah. He's not the king. They always understood that the messiah doesn't die. And if this guy died, then clearly he's not it. Especially when a would-be messiah was crucified. When that happened, the immediate and permanent effect was for his messianic pretensions to be seen as a tragic joke. For example, there was a fellow named Bar Kokhba, a sort of messianic wannabe. He led a revolt in 132 A.D. and the Romans summarily crushed him. Bar Kokhba means son of the star. Once he was dead, the Jewish people began to call him not Bar Kokhba, son of the star, but they from then on called him Bar Kozeba, son of the lie. Or take another fellow, Simon Bar Giora, another messianic wannabe. He led a revolt in 70 AD. And far from ridding Israel of the Romans, the Romans obliterated Simon's army and they destroyed Jerusalem in the process. They took Simon to Rome, dragged him through the streets, and then killed him in a public execution. Josephus, an ancient historian, writes this. He says, After the announcement of his death, the universal shouts of rejoicing that followed, the princes began the sacrifices. The city of Rome held a celebration that day for its victory in the war against its enemies for the stopping of civil disturbances, and for the beginning of hopes of prosperity. When the triumphal ceremonies were over and the empire of the Romans had been established on the firmest possible foundation, Vespasian decided to set up a temple of peace. Roman victory. Roman justice. 
Roman Empire, Roman peace. That was the outcome of Simon's claim to being the Messiah. Now imagine a few of Simon's followers, if any survive, hiding away in caves or in upper rooms. And let's say one of them turns to another and says, hey, you know what? I think Simon was the Messiah after all, in spite of what just happened to Jerusalem and to him. I think the kindest estimate that anyone could give to such a statement was that he had gone mad. That's just not what the Messiah does. The Messiah would defeat the Romans, not suffer an ignominious death at their hands, wouldn't he? This expectation is part of the background of what Gamaliel says in Acts 5. He says, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You see, false messiahs were doomed to failure. And the true Messiah could not be stopped, for God Himself would be on His side. Now, at this point, it should be pretty obvious why a group of people going around making the claim that the Messiah died is going to be a scandal to the Jews. And it's going to sound like nonsense to the Greeks. Nevertheless, that is the earliest Christian confession. Somehow or other, Jesus is the exception to the rule. Bar Kokhba died. Nobody called him Messiah after that. Simon died. Nobody called him Messiah after that. Judas died. Nobody called him Messiah. Why is Jesus the exception? What could possibly account for that except the resurrection? You see, the second half of this confession explains the first. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The Messiah was buried and was raised. You see, this is an extraordinary event. Note, he was buried, and on the third day. This is an event with certain locations, namely in a tomb that had a body in it one day, and then three days later didn't. An event with a certain chronology. He died, was buried, and then three days later, he rose from the dead. This is not some sort of ineffable truth beyond all of history. This is 
an event that we're talking about. Christians have always been adamant on this point. The Apostles' Creed is very adamant about Christ died under Pontius Pilate, a specific Roman governor that reigned for a specific period of time. This didn't happen in some airy-fairy mythical land. It happened in Palestine, the very Palestine that we watch on the news most nights. The resurrection of Jesus was not proclaimed as some sort of mystical experience that the apostles had shared or as some sort of sentimental thought like the Spirit of Jesus lives on the way a Yankees fan might say that the Spirit of Babe Ruth lives on. No, the resurrection of Jesus was proclaimed from the very start as a monumental, earth-shaking event. Something that happened at a specific time, a specific place, leaving an empty tomb and a number of witnesses. Christian confession just is that. It just is that on a certain date, under a certain Roman governorship, in a certain region of ancient Palestine, a certain claimant to the throne of Israel went through death and out the other side, conquering sin and death once and for all. Now, in this respect, Christianity stands alone amongst world religions. As Jesus offered Himself to a doubting Thomas that He might touch His wounds and see that He really was raised, so He offers Himself to modern-day doubters like myself at times and perhaps like some of you in the dark nights of the soul. He offers Himself to you. Look into it. This is history. This is historically verifiable. No other religion is like that. There's no way to verify Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam by the course of just looking at what is the most plausible historical explanation for the things we find before us. Christianity stands alone in that respect. So for those of you who doubt, I ask you, can you make sense of the fact that within a few years, probably a few months of the death of Jesus, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, people went throughout the Roman world declaring that He's risen. He's the King. We've seen Him. This crucified man, I know it sounds crazy, but He's alive and He's coming back. And He's going to judge the earth and set all things right. Can you account for people saying such things if the tomb wasn't really empty? Can you account for people saying such things if they hadn't really seen Him? There doesn't seem to be any other plausible historical explanation for people saying that other than He really was raised. Verses 6-8, through Paul adds on to the confession a few more appearances just for good measure. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. 
though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And particularly when he says, most of whom are still alive of the 500 brethren. He's saying there are witnesses. I'm one of them. There's almost 500 around right now. You can go and ask them. They'll tell you what they saw. He's calling upon eyewitness testimony. And he could do that because this was an event. And this happened. C.S. Lewis put it this way. The first fact in the history of Christendom is a number of people who say they have seen the resurrection. With this in mind, the proclamation of the gospel is the proclamation of the risen king and of his coming risen kingdom. It is the proclamation that King Jesus has conquered a greater empire than Rome ever was. The empire of sin and death. Every earthly ruler who ever lived has bowed the knee to sin. Every earthly ruler who has ever lived or is living either has bowed the knee to death or will bow the knee to death. Sin and death are more powerful than Pol Pot or Augustus Caesar or Alexander the Great. They all bowed to those emperors. Whether you look at the empire of the Greeks or the Romans, the Persians or the Ottomans, all have been but puppet states under this great empire of sin and death. Whether you speak of the Pax Romana, or the Pax Britannica, or even the Pax Americana, or the Third Reich, all of their reigns are subsumed under the reign of sin and death in this present evil age. But no more. Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death once and for all. He conquered that empire. And He, not they, reigns supreme. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 6. He says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Or Galatians 1, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Or Colossians 2, 13-15, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. 
This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus Christ has triumphed over the rulers and authorities, sin and death, and he reigns. Let's turn back now to 1 Corinthians 15:58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. Beloved, Jesus Christ, your King, has conquered sin and death. If you are loyal to the risen King, you have no need to fear them anymore. You have no need to insulate yourselves against them. No need to desensitize yourselves to them any longer. You are free to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. You are free to live radically, taking life-threatening risks for the sake of the Gospel. You are free to go to the hard places and to do the hard things for the name of Christ. You are free to face poverty and AIDS and war. You are free to live self-sacrificially to take up your cross and to follow Him without fear, to be like Paul and die daily. And insofar as you do these things, your labor is not in vain. And beloved, never give up hope. Trust that Christ was raised And as He was raised, so will we be raised up with Him. Your labor is not in vain. Never give up. Do not despair when the phone calls come. For we labor for a kingdom that will one day be fully manifest and that will never fall. We labor for a kingdom that will come when the perishable will put on the imperishable, when mortal will put on immortality, and when death is completely and utterly and totally swallowed up in victory. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You that we can rest in the finished work of Your Son, that He is conquered, that He is seated at Your right hand, and that He reigns Lord, that we have no need to fear sin and death anymore. But Lord, that we can walk faithfully with You and abound in the work of Your Gospel. Lord, be with us now as we sing Your praises. Be with us now as we go. May we walk as people who are citizens of Your eternal kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.